We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our theme for the day is summarized well in our colic when we prayed that the Almighty and merciful God would defend his church from all false teaching and error. And then we sang about that in our sermon hymn for the retention of the pure doctrine. Lord, help us ever to retain the catechism's doctrine plain as Luther taught the word of truth in simple style to tender youth. But it's not just the youth. It's every child of God needs to return to the fundamental truths that God would teach us. And so now we ask the Spirit's direction as we walk our way through the psalm of the day, Psalm 14, focusing on really three points. First, the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Father Reardon writes, Biblical folly is not a matter of being endowed with a hockey score IQ. It would be inaccurate to describe the biblical fool as merely a slow learner or someone intellectually challenged. The latter folk may well be pitied, but the Bible has no compassion for a fool. The biblical record concerning a man named Nabal is the classic portrayal of a Nabal, the Hebrew word translated as fool. We read about it in 1 Samuel 25. You may recall the story. David and 600 of his men are in the wilderness of Paran, and for months now, the shepherds and 6,000 sheep of Nabal have been in the same area. Well, with that many men of war around, not a single ewe lamb was lost. And now it's the time of shearing, and David sends 10 of his young men with this message, quote, Long life to you, and may it go well with you and with your house and with all that is yours. Let the young men find favor in your eyes, because we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand for your servants and for your son, David. Well, Nabal's reply, who's David? And sends the men away. Wrong move. David and 400 of his men strap on their swords and vow not to leave a single male alive that day of Nabal's or his household. Well, Abigail, Nabal's wife, gets wind of her husband's foolishness and organizes a peace offering. She sends 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep prepared with grains, 100 clusters of raisins, 300 cakes of figs, and follows behind on her donkey. Long story short, David accepts Abigail's entreaty, thanks her for keeping him and his men from blood guiltiness. Abigail returns and finds Nabal blind drunk at his shearing party. The story ends, quote, And then in the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these words. Then his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. And then, about ten days later, Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. Mays writes, in the society that this psalm describes, the term designates a person who decides and acts on the basis of a wrong assumption. A Nabal... It's a person who, whether shrewd or powerful, makes a mistake about reality. Nabal assumed David was a nobody, that he was God's anointed, and God acted accordingly. We all have experiences of making faulty assumptions, thankfully with less dire consequences than Nabal. But returning to verse Psalm 14, notice how the psalmist describes the fool. The fool says, in his heart. It's a silent 
not a boastful claim, not arrogant, the very opposite of modern atheism. This is what many commentators will call a more practical atheism. The fool is not concerned with the existence of God, rather the actions of God, or what he sees as the non-actions of God. We hear an echo of our Old Testament lesson, don't we, from Isaiah 29? Ah, those who make a plan deep to hide it from Yahweh, and their deeds are in a dark place, and say, who sees us? And who knows us? Golden Gate captures this idea by translating the opening line of our psalm this way. A scoundrel has said in his heart, God is not here. Notice also that the rest of the psalm is concerned with actions. Abominable deeds, verse 1. Evildoers, verse 4. And again in verse 4, they eat up my people as they eat bread. The psalmist reasons from the way people act to the way people actually think, to what's actually in their heart of hearts. In all of this, this is sin against the first commandment. They do not fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And then from the singular fool in verse 1a to the plural they for the next four and a half verses. And you know, reading these verses, pondering them, taking them to heart, well, we'd like to feel safe. We'd like to separate ourselves from the fool or the fool in his like and say that, well, that's just one part of society. And the psalmist also speaks about my people and the poor. We'd like to make room for ourselves with this second group. Right? We'd like to be among them, if not entirely innocent, at least not a fool. But then we get to verse 2. Yahweh from heaven looked down at the sons of men to see if there's anyone showing insight who seeks God. To look down. This isn't the common Hebrew word for looking, for sight. It is if God is leaning out the window to see what's going on. It's used of Sisera's mother as she looked out the window for his chariot that would never return. He lay dead on Jael's floor with a tent spike through his forehead. It's used of Abraham and the two men as they looked down on Sodom on the eve of its destruction. And what Yahweh saw is extremely troubling. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Corrupt is another special little word in this psalm. It only appears three times in the Hebrew Bible, here and then in Psalm 53, which is almost the identical psalm, and then in Job. The Aramaic root of the term means milk that's gone sour. We have all become like sour milk, corrupt. And then the clincher. There is none who does good, not even... One. A little over a decade ago, the White Horse Inn ran a man-on-the-street interview, and they were outside of Evangelical Pastors Conference, and they quoted this text and asked the interviewees if they agree that there, there is no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. And almost to a person, they said, no, I don't agree with that. And not a single one identified it as a biblical text. Yet clearly, it's in the text, right? But there's more. One of our hermeneutical principles is we let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? Well, this text from Psalm 14 is recounted by Paul in Romans 3. A little context here with a very, very broad brush. In Romans chapter 1, 
Paul declares that the Gentiles stand condemned under the law, that is the natural law. In chapter 2, well, Israel has received the law from God, but yet they stand condemned for not keeping it. And then in chapter 3, all humanity stands before God, who is, of course, the judge. Now, the technical term for what Paul does, splicing together another number of related scriptures, is a cantina. In a quick succession, we hear from Ecclesiastes 7, Psalms 14, 5, 39, and 9, and then Isaiah 59, and finally Psalm 35. Listen to Romans 3, starting at verse 10. Just as it stands written, There is not a righteous person, not even one. There is not one who understands. There is not one who seeks out God. All turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is not one who does kindness. There is not even so much as one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their ways, and they do not know a way of peace. There is not fear of God before their eyes. Close quote. In his commentary, Mittendorf finds, remember that little bit of wiggle room we were trying to find for ourselves? Well, he finds it among the Jews. He says, the Jewish readers were lacking hearing these Septuagint Psalms 14, 5, and 9, respectively, as speaking about two groups. In one category was the fool, the lawless, and the sinner, in sharp contrast to the needy, the humble, and the righteous. Mittendorf writes, Paul, however, has placed everyone together in the category of the wicked by his assertion that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. Recall the repeated phrase, there is not, six times in that little cantina. This is crushing law. And that's our second point this morning. And the formula puts the spike in the coffin when Chatreus writes, just as people who are bodily dead cannot, on the basis of their own powers, prepare themselves or dispose themselves to receive temporal life once again, so people who are spiritually dead in sins cannot, on the basis of their own strength, depose themselves or turn themselves toward appropriate spiritual, heavenly righteousness in life if God, the Son, has not made them alive and freed them from the death of sin. Close quote. So is there any hope in this psalm? Is there any hope anywhere in Psalm 14? Right there. Literally in the there that begins verse 5. There they dreaded a dread. That's literally what it says. But notice the power of the cognate noun, to dread a dread. This is not the Old Testament word for fear. Remember, fear in the Old Testament is often we can translate as awe or reverence for God. No, 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 far from it. This is quaking in your boots, trembling in terror, this is judgment. And commentators want to quibble and parse here, but you know, really, I want to get on to the next clause, which is, why are they in dread? Well, because God is with the generation of the righteous. The generation of the righteous, who's that? There is not one who seeks God, yet there is this generation of the righteous. Do you hear an Old Testament echo there? As for his generation, who considered? His generation, 
his descendants, a generation of the righteous. It comes from Isaiah's fourth servant song. Listen to his generation in a fuller context, starting at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he himself was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like the lamb to the slaughter he was led, and like a ewe in the presence of his shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. Without protection and without justice, he was taken away. Who would have considered his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He made his grave with the unbelievers. But with the rich man in his supreme death, although he had done no violence and no deceit was on his mouth, yet Yahweh was pleased to crush him. He made him sick. And when he had made his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will lengthen his days, and Yahweh's pleasure will succeed in his hand. From the anguish of his life, he will see, he will find full satisfaction. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. And their iniquities, he himself will carry. Therefore, I will apportion to him among the many. And with the numerous ones, he will apportion plunder. Because he poured out to death his life, and with the transgressors, he let himself be numbered. He himself bore the sin of many. And for transgressors, he intercedes. God's son, Jesus, is that servant. He has redeemed a generation of the righteous. Our third point. You are forgiven. Jesus intercedes for you. Psalm 14 contains crushing law, but it is not God's last word. God has supplied a substitute. Verse 6, for Yahweh is their refuge. Through the word, by the watery word of baptism, you are now a member of the generation of the righteous. Yahweh has restored the fortunes of his people, verse 7b. The first part about that final verse is presented as a wish or an exclamation. But the Hebrew will also let us translate it as a question. Who will give from Zion the salvation of Israel? The Son of God incarnate, that he might die. The Son of God slain, that he might rise. The Son of God arisen, that he might draw all people to himself. Now let Israel rejoice, and now let Israel be glad. Now let the church exclaim, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The generation of the righteous in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.